Welcome back to Early Departures. We are here for another week of vacation nightmares. Yeah, I'm Ashley. And I'm Phoebe. Just in case you're new to the show. Hello, hello. So we've been on a murder, murder, murder kick for a while on these episodes. Are we carrying on with murder today? We are carrying on with a uh, accidental mm, death murder. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if it's considered murder. Okay. But we're carrying along with death. Accidental murder death. <laughs> I feel like this is probably one of your fears. I mean, you're afraid of everything, so I... S- oh, probably. Yeah, so this is a... Vint- I'm going to call this a vintage story. Okay. So, 1967. Ooh. I don't think we've done a story this old yet. No. This story takes place in Glacier National Park. Okay. Julie Hegelson from Minnesota and Michelle Coons from California, both 19 at the time, are spending the summer of 1967 working at Glacier National Park in the park lodges. Cute. I believe one was working in laundry, another one was working in the gift shop, but they were working at opposite ends of the park. Julie was working at East Glacier Lodge, and Michelle was at West Glacier's Lake McDonald Lodge. Hmm. Wait, and they were friends or no? No, no, totally separate, just... Two 19-year-old women just spending their summer working at the National Park. All right. But they have this one incident tying them together. Okay. Sounds ominous. On August 12th, 1967, both women embark on overnight backpacking trips on opposite sides of the park. Hmm. They don't know each other. They're both working on opposite sides of the park. They're on their own. Yeah. Glacier's pretty big. Yeah. They're on their own camping trips Hmm. on this night. Julie's path was surrounded by vistas of glacial valleys and mountain peaks. Her excursion took her from the Logan Pass, roughly eight miles to the popular Highline Trail, to the Granite Park Chalet. Hmm. These chalets are kind of where um, park visitors would stay. Uh-huh. She and a friend, Roy Ducat, hiked up the Highline Trail to the Granite Park Chalet. As they were on the hiking trail, they encountered two other hikers that warned them that had seen a bear in the area. Ooh. The couple set up their tent just about a quarter mile from the chalet. They ate their sack dinners and watched the sunset before they tucked themselves into their sleeping bags for the night. Mm-hmm. Shortly after midnight, a grizzly bear meandered towards the campers. Ugh. Roy would later tell investigators that Julie had seen the bear and woke him up, telling him that he should play dead. Oof. The grizzly knocked the pair out of their sleeping bags, and with minutes, the bear had sunk his teeth into each of them. Oh, no. However, it focused on Julie, dragging her about 100 yards away. Oh. Someone help us, she screamed as the bear dragged her off. Roy, with his arm badly mangled, ran to wake up other campers nearby. Oh, man. So as Roy ran to wake up other campers, help finally arrived in the form of a helicopter with medical supplies. Mm. But an overly cautious ranger held up the search party for Julie and the bear, fearful of putting more visitors at risk. Oh, man. Nearly two hours passed before a ranger with a rifle arrived and the group departed on its mission to rescue Julie. Oh, how many hours say two hours? Yeah, about two. So Roy ran to get help from other campers. Uh-huh. They waited for a helicopter to show up with medical supplies, and then from then they waited 
for another ranger to show up right. with the rifle. Oh, God. They followed a blood trail down the hill from their campsite to search for Julie. Oh. As they searched, they heard a noise and spotted Julie face down 400 feet from the original campsite. Oh, man. It hurts, she said several times. Oh, no. Oh, I was like almost kind of like hoping that, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say I was hoping she was dead, but like two hours is a long time. So if she was just sitting there feeling hurt for two hours waiting, that sucks. This whole episode will be slow and painful. <laughs> I guess this whole story will be slow and painful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the group carried her back to the chalet. By this time, it was 3.45 a.m. A doctor staying at the chalet attended to her while they waited for a helicopter to arrive to take her to a nearby hospital. Oh, man. The doctor said the puncture wounds to her throat and lungs were fatal. Oh. Sadly, Julie died just minutes before the helicopter landed. Wow. Now, don't forget we had Michelle, who was also out uh -oh. camping this night. I did forget about her. <laughs> On the other side of the park... As Julie departed on her fateful hike, Michelle was joining her four fellow park employees on a steep eight-mile hike to Trout Lake. Mm -hmm. They arrived at the lake and set up their campsite. At around 8 p.m., as the group cooked hot dogs and fresh fish over a campfire, a grizzly bear crashed their campsite. Dang. Paul Dunn, a fellow camper, said that they spotted the grizzly about 20 feet away while they were cooking dinner. The campers ran away and watched as the bear gobbled up their dinner oh. and scrambled away with one of their backpacks. I'd be like, take it. Go ahead, bear. Take all of it. Paul said they decided to move their camp closer to the lake and built a larger fire. Just an hour later, the bear returned and smashed Michelle's travel case and took their food that they had uh -huh. moved to. See, uh-uh. After the first thing, after the bear walked off with the... <laughs> With the backpack, I would have been hiking my way out. I don't care if it's the middle of the night. I'm going to take my chances. Well, you're eight miles up a trail. And uh, that's okay. Hey, that just means it's downhill to get home, right? <laughs> Paul does say we had three possibilities. We could go to the Arrow Lake Shelter. We could go back the way we came, but both routes went through the berry patches where we might see bears. Mm. So we decided on the third option. We decided to just stay. Oh, man. They probably shouldn't have. The group huddled in sleeping bags close to the fire, hoping the blaze would keep the bear away. At about 4.30 a.m., the grizzly reappeared at the campsite again. Another member of the group said he saw the bear standing about eight feet from the campfire. They pulled their sleeping bags up over their heads and remained still. The bear sniffed around, biting into one of the men's sleeping bags and clawing his sweatshirt. Oh. Paul said the campers all scrambled into the trees, from their perches, they yelled at Michelle to join them, but the zipper of her sleeping bag was stuck. No. <laughs> Horror movie. Horror movie. The bear tore into her sleeping bag and began to drag her away. Uh-uh. He's got my arm. Oh, God, I'm Oof. dead, screamed Michelle. Oh, man. I'm sweating and my heart is beating out of my chest. I, I know. I hate this. I know. So the other campers are stuck in the trees at this point, like Ugh. just watching this gruesome drama unfold. Yeah. And they stay in the trees for two hours before <sighs> running downhill to the nearest ranger station. Oh, man. By the time they had notified the rangers of the attack, a hunt was already under the way for the bear that killed Julie. Dang. So this night is commonly known as the Night of the Grizzlies. 
Oh, I mean, if any night was ever going to be known as that, it sounds like the one. The day after the deadly attacks, two rangers headed out to look for the suspect bear at Trout Lake. The bear was spotted at about 4 a.m. when a ranger stepped outside of the patrol cabin. Within minutes, the bear charged at them and both rangers fired their guns, killing the bear. A forensic investigator came to collect the bear. They had a big knife, the ranger recalls. They slit the stomach of this bear and a big ball of blonde hair came out. No. Oh, Isn't my God. Isn't that just insane? Oh, that kind of reminds me of the shark with the hand in its stomach. <laughs> I know. So I was reading, I read the whole Wikipedia page about bear attacks. So I read like uh-huh. a slew of them. And it's kind of common that they... After the bear attacks, they go to kill the bear because of the aggressive behavior. Yeah. And there was a few stories where they found body parts inside of the bear. Oh, man. Oh, and also, though, I do want to just say, I do feel bad for the bear being killed because the bear is just being a bear. Like, they're just doing bear things out in the woods. And we go into their territory and you know cook delicious meals and whatnot and i also feel like obviously not blaming the victim whatsoever here but i would have left when the bear first came and took my food in my backpack especially because then after that i feel like that bear knows you got the good treats he might come back he might go tell his bear friends like hey they got some beef jerky over there and then his friends are gonna show up I just feel like now you've been <laughs> you've been discovered as a as a food source for some hungry bears. A food source for the hungry bears is something that's a big part of the story. Uh-huh. So I'll get to that in a second. After they find the bear that killed Michelle at Trout Lake, finding the bear that killed Julie near the chalet proved to be a bit more difficult. Mm. The park rangers watched the area around the chalet and ended up killing three bears in the process. It was actually um, a mother, which is called a sow, and it's cubs. He said they never found any remains, but the female bear had blood on her claws. Dave Shea, the park ranger at the time, was pretty upset by the whole thing. He said it wasn't really the bear's fault in the first place, and now we had to kill these bears. Not to shift blame, but the park management wasn't using common sense. Mm. They weren't doing things right. Yeah. So a week prior to Michelle's outing to the lake, a troop of Girl Scouts hiking in the area were also chased by a bear. Oh, my God. And the bear stole one of the girls' food, but luckily no one was injured. But all that to say, there was a serious bear issue going on in the park. And as the ranger said, the park wasn't using common sense. Mm. Because... Just four days before the attacks, Park Ranger had visited the chalet, that's where Jilly was camping, mm-hmm. and discovered the hotel was feeding its food scraps to the bear with oh. the intent of attracting tourists. No. I guess, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, mean to old older people, but the 60s were crazy. So <laughs> I feel like they did not know a lot of things that we know these days. Yeah, and that's why I said a lot of people in the outdoor oh. recreation space kind of knows this story because it was a very pivotal time for uh, park management to change. Yeah. So the rangers submitted a report to the headquarters about the concern. A garbage incinerator had actually been installed in the chalet the prior year, but wasn't large enough, so the caretaker continued to dump the garbage in the gully behind the chalet. Oh, my God. And remember, they were only camping about a fourth of a mile from that area, and 
I believe they had been warned, but again, there was other campers out and, yeah. you know, people were pretty naive to the bear situation. Even though the caretaker had been instructed to not feed the bears, one of the advertisements for the chalet had actually been, come to Granite Park and see the grizzly bears. Yeah. So the heaps of garbage at the chalets weren't the only problem. Campsites all around Glacier National Park were not being well maintained. Mm. Visitors were sloppy with their trash and frequently would just abandon the campsites. The weeks following the attacks, rangers picked up nearly 20 bags of garbage from Trout Lake, where Michelle had been camping. Um, you know what it reminds me of? Um, did you watch Mad Men when that show was on? Yes. So there's one part where uh, Don and the family go on a picnic, and at the end, he just, like, you know, fluffs the blanket up and just, like, makes all the trash go onto the grass, and then they just pack up the car and leave. Because apparently people really did that back in the day. They were just like, oh, we're out in nature. It's fine. You don't have to pick it up. It'll it'll just return to nature. And the EPA didn't uh, wasn't founded until like uh, 1970, I think. So yeah, this is that before there was any kind of <laughs> environmental protection. God, there must have been people, though, who were like. You know, knew better and were freaking out. Yeah. So as we, as you kind of mentioned earlier, the bears basically lost their fear of humans. They started to associate them with a free dinner. Yeah. And it was basically these tragedies were kind of waiting to happen. Uh, the same thing was happening in Yellowstone Park. They actually had erected bleachers around the dump so tourists could, could watch the bears dine on chicken bones and eat the rotten vegetables. Uh, uh. Oh, my God. That's wild. Yeah. That is wild. Oh, my God. That was from, I believe, um, an outside online or Smithsonian Magazine article I read about this. A ranger at the time said, never had a grizzly killed a human. If you set up a danger index ranging from 0 to 10, where the butterfly is a 0 and the rattlesnake is a 10, the grizzlies of Glacier Park would have been somewhere between 0 to 1. Hmm. I mean, the park had been around for about 57 years and had never had an incident. Yeah. No fatal grizzly attack had ever been recorded in the park's 57-year history prior to that night. Ugh. One specialist at the time calculated the odds were greater than one in one million for a single attack, but the odds of two separate attacks in four hours were beyond measure. Right. That's crazy. That's like the wildest part is it was building up to this, and then it was like double whammy. Yeah. (laughs) Now, in some of the accounts about the story... Also, people say that that night there was, like, really large lightning storms and that could have, like, spooked uh-huh. the bears. But I believe the one bear that they found by Trout Lake, um, they found glass in his gums, which means he would have had oh. trouble eating anyways. And he was about 200 pounds or less. They described him as emaciated. Um, uh-huh. So they said that, you know, he was probably hungry oh. and having trouble chewing. So he was just like, God. yeah, it was just like a, a bad combination of everything. Yeah. Oh, poor babies. After the attacks, Glacier's bear management plan expanded virtually overnight from three pages to around 50 pages. Wow. The park initiated a strict pack-in, pack-out policy. Mm-hmm. The dumps were eliminated. Rangers started to ticket visitors who fed bears and kicked out campers with messy campsites. When grizzlies frequented the trails, the areas were closed until the bears moved on. Warnings and tips on bear safety were posted throughout the park. The park set rules for food storage, installed bear-proof trash cans, and devised the -the off-the-ground storage for backcountry campers. 
They even implemented a new permit system that limited the number of campers in the backcountry and required them to sleep in designated areas a distance away from cooking areas. Hmm. So, as I mentioned, the night... The the events of August 13th, commonly referred to as the Night of the Grizzlies, was a pivotal moment in history for outdoor recreation, giving rise to the leave-no-trace ethic in the outdoors. And this has resulted in increased safety for both humans and bears. Uh, The new practices soon spread to other national parks. By 1970, Yellowstone and other parks in the lower 48 were people were likely to encounter grizzly bears had enacted many of the same policies set forth by Glacier. Mm -hmm. Good. (laughs) A park ranger said, the tragedy of that night is that two lives were lost, but the common sense precaution that hikers follow today are the good that came of the horror. And as I mentioned, there is a famous book written by Jack Olson called The Night of the Grizzlies that cover all the details Mm. of the attacks and the impact on wildlife and park management. And there's also a PBS documentary about this. Ooh, I might have to look that up. I watched part of the PBS documentary. I found it a little dry. Well, I love me a dry documentary, so. (laughs) Might be right up your alley then. So bear attacks do happen still. I mean, you know, as as we said, we're kind of intruding in, in their land. Some stats from, I believe, 2016 were that there were 71 bear-related fatalities in the U.S. since 1900. Wow. 47 of them being grizzly bears, 23 being black bears, and mm. one polar bear incident. Uh, most attacks happen July and August. Nearly half of all U.S. bear attacks have occurred in six of the national parks. Glacier Park having 12 deaths. Flathead Forest having three, Yellowstone having eight. Hmm. And then also in Alaska, Glacier Bay has two. Hmm. Those are just some top-level stats. There's some more. But one thing I did find interesting when I was looking up um, some handy-dandy safety tips from the National Park Service Uh was if a black bear charges and tries to attack you, fight back with everything you have. Hmm. They say, do not play dead. Punch and kick it in the face. Use any weapons, rocks, bear spray. Do anything you can in your power to defend yourself. However, if a grizzly or brown Mm. bear charges and attacks you, play dead. Do not fight back. Cover your head and your neck with your hands and arms. Lay flat on your stomach and spread your legs. Keep your backpack on or any layers of clothes Mm -hmm. to help protect you. And whatever you do... Don't make any noise. You're trying to convince the bear that you are not a threat. God. Do not run. Do not climb a tree. Fighting back with a grizzly bear will usually worsen the attack. But they said if the attack continues to persist, then fight back with everything you have. Yeah. So, yeah. And one of the... I I forgot what website I was on. It was definitely like some kind of park website. And they said, whatever you do, don't push your friend down to the ground. If they're being slow. <laughs> I, I mean. Like, what the hell? I'm not making any promises. What is that? Uh, that I, I only have to outrun you. I don't have to outrun the bear. <laughs> yeah. That's a little about bears. I mean, I knew they were deadly, but after reading all these attacks, I was pretty, I was pretty baffled. There was quite a few. And actually, I believe was in Yellowstone in the last two years, a mountain biker was riding his bike and rounded a corner and went like. <sighs> 
head on right into a bear. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> this is a nightmare. He, Hello. He died. Oh. I mean, he wasn't like, he wasn't mauled and mangled, yeah. but uh, he definitely died Dang. from his injuries. From I mean, yeah, be like that would be like driving your bicycle into a car. So. Well, I think the bear, like, if the car had claws and teeth. <laughs> oh, I thought you just meant, like, it ran into the bear. Oh, no, I mean, he did run into the bear, and then the bear got startled, and... <laughs> the bear was mad. Yeah, I loved reading through the Wikipedia page, because it's broken out by decade, and then each bear type for each decade. Uh-huh. And it was super interesting. They give you, like, three sentences about each one, but it was just interesting mm. enough to be like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, polar bears don't kill people too often, Two instances where polar bears did. Um, people were under the influence of drugs and broke into the zoo enclosure. <sighs> These two individuals, separate individuals, separate cities, broke into the polar bear enclosure and mm. things did not end well. People, for some reason, people don't look at polar bears and go, that's a bear. Bears are dangerous. They look at them and go, wow, that's neat. <laughs> like polar bears are so cool like no that is true you're right they, they will whoop your ass though <laughs> anyway um i thought you would have been more terrified by that no i definitely uh i definitely don't like to think about people being torn up um you know and last year i went hiking in uh the dolomites in italy and I was not worried about bears whatsoever. I had heard that there were wolves in the area. So I was like, oh, I got to watch out for that. I did not hear a thing about there being bears in the area. And then just like, I was a couple months ago, a guy and his son got attacked by a bear, like pretty badly, not very far from where we were. So, you know, <laughs> sure, if I had heard that there were bears in the area before I went there, I would have been a lot more careful and a lot more concerned. What I think I learned through the whole thing was like most of the attacks seemed to happen when someone was hiking and accidentally stumbled upon the bear and the bear was with its cubs yeah. or was eating. So they're very protective of their cubs and they're also very territorial of their food. And it's like, that's such an accidental thing to happen. Yeah. Like one, you're probably not expecting it. Two, you're both scared. And three, it generally did not end well in any of these stories I read. And I'm just like, <laughs> shit, it can happen just so. Of course, at the same time, it's like there's so many stories stories about bear encounters that you won't read about because nothing happened and they were fine. And you probably read about those on people's personal blogs because it didn't get reported in the news because it wasn't a big deal. So... Also, I've seen videos of bears opening people's car doors, opening the house doors. Yeah. I thought you were going to say opening people's bodies. <laughs> I haven't seen that video. I'm glad. That that seems like something you wouldn't be able to unsee. So, <laughs> But okay. Enough of the bears. Sounded like I've got a double homicide to learn about. Well, yeah, maybe. Um <laughs> Uh, but that was, uh, that was a nice distraction. I mean, people died, but I also learned a lot. So I always appreciate that. I try to make it educational and informative. I'm about to teach you nothing. So, well, I've learned in this brief stint of quarantine and all my time I've spent at the state parks around here. Yeah. But like deep down, I think I want to be like a part time park ranger. Um, yeah. I know a girl I used to work with who she is a park ranger in Alaska right now. Shout out to Amber if you stumble across this podcast somehow. Um, and she's a total badass and 
Yeah, that's just what she does. She's just out there in nature, and especially now with <laughs> COVID, she is just kind of really out there in nature by herself. So Okay, so this gives my like part-time park ranger, part retirement job hope. Yeah, although, you know, you can't really do it part-time. <laughs> kind of a full-on commitment, but... You know, I'm gonna look into this. Stay tuned. Don't lose hope. Stay tuned, yeah. listeners. Good to have goals. In two years, I could be podcast famous and a park ranger. <laughs> Everyone coming to the park to see me. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Oh, okay. Enough of me being full of myself. Hey, if you can't be full of yourself, who can? You know. That's true. Well, I am gonna take us to the other side of the country. We're going to Florida. Ooh. So, we're going to Sarasota, to be exact, which I have never been to. Have you? I feel like I've probably driven through it. Mm. It's on the west side, isn't it? Somewhere around Tampa, in between Mm. Tampa and... Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know my Florida geography. I only lived in Panama City Beach, so... Did you really? I did. How did I not know that? So, we both had a stint in Florida at one point in life? Yeah, I was a young airman uh, living the high life at Tyndall Air Force Base where I could see the beach from my barracks. Oh, it was yes. It was quite a setup. Anyway, that is definitely neither here nor there um, because that wasn't even in Sarasota. Never been to Sarasota, but I learned a little bit about Sarasota from this episode. So, or from this story, I'm going to tell you rather. So, on April 15, 2011, Kenyatta Whitfield picked her son, Sean Tyson, up from his court hearing. He'd been in juvenile detention for about a week after being arrested for shooting out the taillight of a car full of people with a silver 22 caliber revolver on April 7th. So, about a week before she was picking him up from the court hearing. He had also threatened people three separate times with the gun that day. Sean was released to his mother and was to be on house arrest. This sounds interesting already. (laughs) How old was he? Well, I was just about to say, Sean, a 16-year-old middle school dropout, had many troubles. He'd been a good, respectful, and athletic kid, but as his teens progressed, he became more and more of a problem child for Kenyatta, a single mother raising four kids in a public housing complex called The Courts in the Newtown area of Sarasota. By the age of 16, he was hanging around with a bad crowd, had the word savage tattooed on his chest, and he'd gotten a girl pregnant. Okay. Yeah. So, rough life already by 16. Kenyatta spoke to her son after picking him up from the courthouse and basically said they need to figure out what he's going to do because this type of behavior was going to get him nowhere fast. So they have a bit of a heart-to-heart, and Sean agrees that on Monday, he'll re-enroll in school and try to do better so he could have a better chance of providing for his baby that's now on the way. Sean's mom left the house that evening and told him, quote, I love you. Don't do nothing stupid. Mm -hmm. James Kozari... 24, and James Cooper, 25, or Jam and Coops, as they were known to their friends, were best friends who met when they were students at the University of Sheffield in England. They shared a passion for travel, and neither stayed in one place for very long. Coops was on a three-week holiday in Sarasota with his parents, and two weeks in, Jam, just finishing off a three-month stay in South America, came to join him to celebrate Coops' 25th birthday. 
Coop's family rented a condo in Longboat Key, and the boys stayed there with them. This is definitely not their first time in Sarasota, though. The Cooper family were huge tennis fans, and Coops was a tennis pro back home who had just secured a position as head tennis coach at Warwick University. Sarasota, if you're not aware, is a mecca for tennis fans. That's why I've never been there. I'm not a tennis fan. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's... Also, can we get cool nicknames like Jammin' and Coop? <laughs> I mean, I feel like somebody has to give us those names, so... <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, it's like Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> well, that's our name now. Good job, Phoebe. It's taken. It's already taken. Well. <sighs> so, on April 15th at 6 p.m., the guys went with a family friend to a street party for the Sarasota Open Tennis Tournament, which was underway at the time. After that, they went to dinner with Coop's parents and spent the rest of the night bar hopping around Sarasota. After leaving their last bar, the guys were walking around lost and drunk. They were familiar with Sarasota enough to feel at least somewhat safe about wandering for a bit. In fact, in 2009, Jam lost his wallet in a Sarasota bar. Someone found it and brought it to the police who mailed it back to him in England, including the cash inside. That's kind of awesome. It was really nice of that person. Yeah. And the police officers to mail it back. Yeah, so they kind of had, like, a nice view of Sarasota. I also can relate to, like, I feel like we've been in quite a few places leaving the bar and, like, drunk, just, <laughs> like, having a good time walking and talking, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and places where we felt really safe doing that, too, like Japan. I was, I was about to say Japan. <laughs> I think that's all we did. Drinking in alleyways in the middle of the night, yeah. We were being stoop kids on the stoop. Uh, never felt safer in my life, though. <laughs> So, it was around 2.45 a.m. that Jam and Coops found themselves near the court's public housing complex. They weren't aware of the area's reputation for crime. Sean Tyson and his friend saw Jam and Coops and allegedly decided to rob them. A neighbor saw two very drunk and shirtless guys walking down the street and saw Sean and another male fall in line behind them, following them for a distance before walking out of the neighbor's view. The guys said they had no money and said they were just lost in trying to get home and asked to please let them leave. Sean, according to what he later told friends, said, quote, Well, since you ain't got no money, I got something for your ass, and shot Jam twice in the back as he tried to run away, with one of the shots perforating his spleen, diaphragm, lung, and heart. He shot Coops, who was on his knees, crying for his life, four times, with one of the bullets passing through his lung before lodging in his heart. Jam and Coops were dead. Wow. That is just horrific. Yeah. So swift and just for... And so violent and like... Yeah, for almost no reason. And like just to accidentally end up there because they're lost. <laughs> Uh, which is always something I'm a little bit afraid of when I travel places. If I don't do much research into where I'm going, I'm always just a tad worried that I'm going to wander off, you know, one street too far. I, yeah. And I also just, these kind of murders, I just don't understand. Kind of like in the last episode, like what drives you to just like show up and just shoot someone right in the yeah. back? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, nothing's. You're not going to get away with it. Nothing good is going to come of it. So, like, yeah. where is that just, like, 
I don't know, hatred yeah. come from? I don't know if it's even hatred. Just like what is going on that this was a logical thing to do? Yeah. So that's the account as told by 18-year-old Latrice Washington, a friend of Sean's, whom he had later bragged to about the incident. Investigators said her account was so accurate in comparison to what they found at the crime scene that basically the only way she could have known those particular details would be if she was there or if the shooter had told her. So I said they allegedly planned to rob them because if the plan had been to rob them, it was a very botched attempt in that Jam and Coop still had their wallets, designer watches, cell phones, a digital camera, and about $125 between the two of them at the time that their bodies were discovered. So, you know, that doesn't really add up. Right. So I guess, like, that makes me feel like the motive was just murder, which is like, what is happening? Yeah, and he, like, literally just got out of his trial for waving his gun around. Sean was arrested within 24 hours of the murders. According to investigators, it was very hard to get anybody to come forward with information. As it often goes, no one in the neighborhood wanted to be seen as a snitch. And investigators traded reduced sentences with some of the people who ended up being witnesses. And importantly to that, fact latrice did not trade anything for her testimony she was not in any kind of like prior trouble that they could trade anything with so she just gave her testimony freely though she said she was very scared to testify sean told another friend marvin Gaines, that he'd killed the men marvin testified that on april 16th sean asked him if he had heard quote about them people getting killed back there Marvin said he hadn't, and Sean said, quote, I did that. Tyson gave Martin seven twenty-two caliber shell casings and told him to bury them in his backyard. He also gave Marvin the gun. Marvin, in turn, gave it to another friend who sold it for $50. What? <laughs> I just can't imagine someone coming to me and be like, here, please, please bury these spent shell casings. Uh, yeah, and if somebody was like, I have a gun... Do you want it $50? I'd be like, definitely that there's something, you know, like there's bodies on that gun. I don't want it. Yeah. Throw that in the river. I mean, don't throw it in the river or the ocean. Well, yeah. (laughs) But you know what I mean. You don't want it. Don't take it. Yeah. Investigators threatened to charge Marvin with being an accessory to the murder if he didn't show them where he'd buried the casings. So he did. The gun, however, was never recovered. Other people testified that Sean was definitely known to have had a twenty-two caliber Smith & Wesson and that he carried it everywhere and often threatened people with it or just shot at things like stop signs around the neighborhood. <laughs> so just a real fun guy to have around the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> his poor mother. Yeah. I, I, I'm not a mother. I can't imagine if I had a child who was getting into all this kind of stuff. Uh, I also can't imagine some neighbor kid shooting the stop signs on my street. No, and now there's a kid that won't have its father around. Yep. Uh, In addition to all the witness testimony, Sean's DNA matched a sample taken from Coop's genes. Sean spoke to his half-brother from Sarasota County Jail and told him, quote, Somebody said they saw me out there. They found the bullets. It's the only thing that's going to fuck me up. The conversation was recorded and played during the trial. So, not smart. 
I feel like if you're in a jail, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't claim to be a jail expert or anything. Never, never been in jail, but I feel like I would imagine anything I said in there was probably being recorded. <laughs> so I wouldn't say dumb things. Don't they? I mean, when you watch all the jail TV shows, don't they say that when you call? Yeah, like your I calls think so. being like recorded and monitored by the so and so. Yeah, I would assume. Don't they read your letters too? Yeah. So at the trial, Paul Davies, a close friend of both Jam and Coops, said of his deceased friends, quote, If either of them had been standing in their neighborhood at 3 a.m. and saw you wandering around, I'm sure at first they would have wondered what you were up to and even maybe approached you. But if they asked you what you were doing and you explained that you were lost, drunk, and just wanted to go home, they would at the very least have given you directions or let you use their cell phone to call a taxi. I'm even going to bet that they would have paid for it if you had no money and needed help. They were good people. The jury deliberated for less than two hours, including their lunch break, before finding Tyson guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. Tyson showed very little emotion as the verdict was read. He, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. His sentence, but not the conviction, was thrown out in 2014 because he was only 16 when the crime was committed. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because usually they're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, it, it It would never really seem right for like a basically a child <laughs> to be sentenced for life. Right. It's very controversial for, for minors to get life sentences. And it's... Yes. Uh, and the Florida Supreme Court ruled that juvenile homicide offenders cannot be sentenced to life without parole. So Sean was resentenced as a juvenile. Basically, he would remain incarcerated, but his case will be up for review after 25 years. Very sadly, Sean's mother, Kenyatta, maintained her belief in her son's innocence, saying he had his problems, but he was not a killer. She believed it was the accomplice who had murdered Jam and Coops and not her son. She felt like all these witnesses had just testified against Sean for their own gain and basically threw him to the wolves to get help for themselves. That alleged accomplice was in jail at the time of Sean's trial due to a parole violation and was released nine months after Sean's conviction. At this time, police have not been able to gather enough evidence to charge him with the murders or with being an accomplice at all. So there's not much to go on there. Interesting. Um, a really sad thing was that Sean's father, Tyrone Tyson, had spent two years in prison for aggravated assault with a weapon. And I just feel like it's, you know, one of those things where he, you know, if you have a, a parent who is incarcerated, you're so much more likely to end up incarcerated yourself. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um. So Sean already, by the time he was young became a statistic himself mm -hmm. so you know it just it sucks on all sides i mean he's so young like 16 like those are exactly i mean to yeah. kill someone or even just to be firing a gun aimlessly into your neighborhood those are that's like a i mean some bold actions to be taking at that age yeah, and I wish that somebody, you know, if some if some kid was shooting signs on, you know, on my street, I, I would certainly hope that enough times of him doing things like that and cops being called on him and going to juvenile detention and things like that, I I would hope 
that somebody would figure out that this kid needs help. But mm-hmm. even as I'm saying that, I'm like, no, he would just end up in juvie and then he'd end up in jail someday. Like, there's just, unfortunately, there is not enough mental health care available to anyone, let alone to teenagers in this country. Um, but you think that too, though. I mean, from just like a normal standpoint, you think if a kid was shooting at signs in his neighborhood and waving a gun around, that in a perfect world, somebody would have said that kid needs to talk to somebody <laughs> and got a professional help, you know? And then he wouldn't be in jail right now. Yeah. Yeah, and I wonder why there wasn't more intervention when he got out of juvie when his mom picked him up. Like, was was he on probation from that? Oh, boy. Apparently, that in that case, it was like there was one judge who had seen his case and had said who would who did not want to release him to, to home to house arrest. Uh, and then somehow it was one of those things that like fell through some cracks. And then another judge came in, did not know something, you know, about the case, whatever, and released him. Um, you know, and it's probably one of those things where it's just an overtaxed, underfunded, under broken system. Yeah, where it's just things fall through the cracks. And if, I mean, gosh, it's awful. It's awful to even suggest or think about. But if he had not been released on house arrest, though, you know, Jam and Coops very well may still be alive. Uh, Sean might just be in juvie, like serving a year or something. Like it's right. Maybe getting help within juvie or learning the lesson. Yeah, I mean, probably not, but <laughs> I just I don't think the juvenile detention system in America is very great. I don't think a lot of people get very much help when they're in that system, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, at the very least, at least it would have made those two parties, Jam and Coops and Sean, miss each other, you know? Yeah, they would not have crossed paths. Yeah. It's very sad. It is sad. What a bummer. Yeah. And you know... They were, uh, what were they doing? They were celebrating Coop's birthday. <laughs> Don't ever celebrate anything. Ashley with the, you cannot have any fun in life. Don't have any fun. Don't go out for birthday dinners. <laughs> no. I'm kidding. Oh, but it is terrible, though, because I do think, like, oh, there have been times in my life that I've definitely stumbled out of bars so drunk that I... Did not know where I was or what I was doing. And, you know, thankfully ended up at my correct hotel or wherever I was staying. It's just awful. Like, what a uh, chance encounter that led to something so sad. Yeah. I mean, it's sad for all. I mean, technically three people lost their lives, you know? Yeah. Three people's futures were absolutely destroyed. Yeah. Well. (laughs) So... Sorry about that, but I feel like at least we had some fun talking about bears. Um, maybe we should have ended talking about that. <laughs> I know. I'm glad I did told the bear story this episode and not my honeymooner story. Because See, I told you. It would have been too much. <laughs> that, we would have just had to chop up that episode. Yeah. And like, well, we got to put this one out in part. It's so depressing. Yeah. Anyway, well, uh, hey, send us your bear stories. Cause... That's what I was going to say. I want to hear all your bear stories. Oh, yeah, me too. And if you're a park ranger listening, tell me all about your job. Yeah. Tell us why we shouldn't 
or should be park rangers. <laughs> what are the ups and downs? Yeah. How many bears have you run into? Yeah. How many cans of bear spray have you gone through? <laughs> And you can send those emails to early departures podcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at early departures podcast. We love to hear from you. And we always appreciate a review. Yeah. So come back next week. We'll bum you out a little bit, but we'll also maybe teach you something again. On that note, be safe and depart on time.